Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Mark Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Merrick Lincoln. So Merrick is an assistant professor of exercise science and rehabilitation medicine at Saginaw Valley State University. He's also a licensed physical therapist and a strength conditioning coach. So who better today to discuss how you can use pain scores to make sure that you're optimizing your rehab training. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Merrick onto the show. Merrick, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this. Thank you so much for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? So uh, Merrick Lincoln, my background is in physical therapy. And in the States, um, we go through a, a doctorate of physical therapy program. Um, somehow, after a few years of clinical practice, I found myself in academia. So my current title um, is an associate professor. I teach in the exercise science and rehabilitation medicine programs at a kind of mid-sized school in Michigan, United States of America, um, called Saginaw Valley State University. And if you envision that mitten-shaped state, for those of you abroad, surrounded by these uh, great lakes or inland seas, we're right at um, the crook of the thumb, where the thumb meets the hand. We're in the, the Bay region, the Great Lakes Bay region. That's, that's where I'm located. So I maintain clinical practice in, in physical therapy, but I'm also able to teach and do research um, through the university. So I've got the best of, of all worlds, in my opinion. Um, you know, personally, I, I just became a dad of twins. Um, my twins are eight weeks old today as of the date of recording. Um, so that's been a major lifestyle change, uh, but I'm loving every minute of it. And um, just trying to, you know, find that work-life balance that everyone, everyone talks about. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Professionally, my, my interests lie um, in programming, um, specifically strength and conditioning programming and its applications to performance enhancement for athletes, um, whether competitive athletes or your everyday, you know, everyday fitness athletes, um, injury risk reduction. So use of strength and conditioning programming to reduce risk of injury and on the clinical side, use of strength and conditioning interventions uh, to rehabilitate musculoskeletal injuries or orthopedic injuries. I think that's a, that's a really nice little segue into the, the first part of the, the podcast as well. So when, when it comes to those different aspects, obviously you've got the strength training aspect and, and the rehab aspect, how do we define those things and what's the difference between those things before we get into all the details of how they can affect each other and uh, you can use one to improve the other, but what are they and, and why are they distinct from each other? All right, so strength training, um, one to six reps, 85% 1RM plus, um, right? Uh, and, then, and then rehab, um, three sets of 10, colorful rubber bands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, pick, yeah. All right, so it's obviously a joke, right? Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so strength training is, is any activity, typically resistance training, resistance-based, any activity undertaken for the purpose of improving strength or these strength-related qualities. And athletes do this. Um, everyday folks should do this. Uh, we do this a lot in rehabilitation, but strength training isn't the only component of rehabilitation. Um, it, it can be a component of it, though, an important component of it. Uh, the caveat here, or the important feature of rehabilitation, is any strength training interventions are preceded by examination and diagnosis. So we're, we're undertaking rehabilitation to address an injury. Um, and a common 
feature of many injuries is is pain. And Matt, I I know you're a strength coach, uh, long background in that. How often would you say an athlete uh, on the team or in the weight room complained of pain? Is is that a common occurrence in your experience? I, I would say if you if you took it across, I work with what forty five athletes on a weekly basis. You've probably got. 15 to 20 with some kind of small niggling injury or, a, or they're just having a moan, anything from a moan all the way through to, okay, they, they have a, 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 like a respectable injury. Like, I don't know, like they've just had a, a shoulder surgery or something You're like this person has pain. We get it. Or, or, or coach, or I'm struggling today. Or, and you've got to go, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. Just lift your weights. And then that's all better again. So any, anywhere between that kind of scale. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so incredibly common and, you know, pain and injury are, it's part of the human experience, part of the experience as an athlete. Right. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that we, we see every day, we have to contend with every day. Um, and my position is that this, this distinction between rehabilitation and what you do in the weight room, strength training, um, it, it's kind of a, a false dichotomy at a certain point. Um, for for certain athletes, because sometimes the best place for that athlete with some sort of musculoskeletal pain is still in the weight room. Um, in my current interest, something that really excites me um, is thinking about how can we get these athletes back to the weight room as efficiently and confidently as possible. So we need to we need to have a system in place. We need to work with our our brothers and sisters in strength and conditioning um, and have tools to to allow us to be on the same page. So when, when obviously it comes to, to what those tools are, um, you've got, you've got pain and we've just established it's pretty common. So like Matthew Ibrahim was talking about this recently and that this is obviously why we've got you onto the show. So, um, how do we use these, these scales or pain monitoring tools, um, to, to actually work out how much pain there is? how the athletes are perceiving that. And then of course, how we can deal with the situation at hand. Yeah. So, so Matthew was kind enough to mention me in your recent podcast with him. And um, we had just spoken, I had just spoken with his, his students in his athletic performance university program um, on a wide variety of strategies that uh, the rehabilitation professional can use to work with strength and conditioning professionals. And one of those was these pain monitoring models. And this is by no means new and by no means something that I developed. Um, to my knowledge, back in the mid-90s, um, the it stemmed from the physical therapy literature. So uh, Dr. Um, Thomi, I believe, was the first to publish on this back in 90s, 97. Um, and he proposed we use this pain monitoring model to assist us in guiding rehabilitation for patellofemoral pain syndrome. So that's kind of this anterior knee pain, kind of a, a bucket diagnosis, um, not necessarily a ligament injury, um, uh, not necessarily a tendinopathy, but uh, anterior knee pain. Um, and then really in the last several decades, a professor at, I believe she's at University of Delaware, um, Dr. Karen uh, Gavar-Silbernagel uh, has really taken the lead on uh, what I perceive to be the highest quality research in this realm. She's done the random, several of the randomized controlled trials comparing use of these pain monitoring models to pain-free rehabilitation. That is, we have the choice of using this model that allows us to accept pain as a reality of the rehabilitation process or of the 
process of exercising in the presence of injury, or we avoid pain altogether. And my interpretation of, of at least those randomized controlled trials is that the outcomes are at least as good or better when we implement a pain monitoring model rather than saying, okay, we have to avoid pain altogether. And, and coach, if you know, so-and-so at team practice is complaining of pain in the weight room, you got to shut it down. Um, so I, I suppose I should define this pain monitoring model. So it's a, a set of rules. Um, if you think about a traffic light, um, you know, you have your green, yellow, and red, and you're passing through an intersection. Uh, green means go. It's typically safe to pass through a green light. And if you envision this scale, um, the area on the scale um, is green in the areas where the athlete's reporting relatively low pain. And, and to quantify pain uh, or to report pain, at least in sports medicine fields, we commonly use a, an 11 point scale, zero to 10. Zero is no pain and 10 is usually anchored as um, the worst pain imaginable. So typically on these pain monitoring models, a zero to two, that's your green territory. So in my, in my experience, you know, a zero to two, you're aware of it if it's a one or a two, but it's, it's certainly not interfering with anything. And then as we move along that scale into the yellow light territory, this is the proceed with caution, proceed with caution on many of these scales, um, pain monitoring model scales, that is your three, four, and five out of 10 pain. Okay. And then red light. Now, red light doesn't necessarily mean if you run that red light in an intersection, that you're going to experience a traffic incident or crash. Uh, but you certainly increase the likelihood of, of having a, a problem. Um, so on most of these scales, six to 10 on that visual analog VAS, that zero to 10 scale of pain would be considered red light territory. That is, um, we need to either stop the exercise or modify it in some way to make it better tolerated by the athlete. So obviously when, when we can use that, right? So we've got like, let's say an athlete in front of us and we go, right, here's your scale. Can you point to where you are? And we start to then use that in a practical sense. What might we be doing to adjust uh, a training session or adjust a, yeah, a field or, or gym-based uh, type training to make sure that we're avoiding that high risk or at least, yeah, mitigating that risk somewhat? So I'm going to take maybe one or two steps back and then address that question, Matt. Um, so to implement a pain monitoring model, I would stress that we first need to have the athlete go through that process of examination and diagnosis. We need to make sure the use of a pain monitoring model is appropriate for the given injury uh, or complaint the athlete has. And now we have scholarly literature to suggest that pain monitoring models can be used for, um, the highest quality evidence right now is for Achilles tendinopathy. Okay, so these tendon problems uh, in the heel cord, um, which theoretically like an overuse type injury. You can conceptualize it like an overuse injury. Uh, we have scholarly suggestion that we can use these for patellar tendinopathy. That is a tendon problem like jumper's knee, right? Um, we have several uh, experts suggesting that we ought to use these for rotator cuff related pain. Um, so the rotator cuff or the tendons of the rotator cuff are uh, implicated in the shoulder pain. Um, we have at least one study uh, to suggest that we could use this for lateral epicondylitis, so tennis elbow. 
Um, so we're, we're thinking these um, musculoskeletal injuries where pain is a predominant feature, um, but we don't suspect there's a tissue capacity problem. So for example, you'd mentioned someone who just had surgery. So someone has a rotator cuff repair surgery where that tendon is actually surgically repaired and anchored down. We know we have to protect that injury, that surgery site for months because the tissue capacity is just not there. Its ability to tolerate the exercise isn't there. So using the pain monitoring model um, for that individual is likely not appropriate. And I could talk about other areas um, where I feel a pain monitoring model is not appropriate, but I want to focus on the areas where, where it likely is. So across the board, in my experience, tendinopathies. We don't suspect a tendinopathy is likely to rupture. In fact, the data we have on Achilles tendinopathy suggests only about 4% of painful Achilles tendinopathies ultimately tear or rupture. Um, and those tears or ruptures usually come without warning. So if someone's symptomatic, they have a painful heel cord, the sports medicine provider is usually not terribly concerned about the tissue failing. We're more concerned about the tolerance of the athlete to exercise. And there's actually good suggestion that rehabilitating that Achilles tendinopathy or tendon problem may require some painful exercise. So this system of pain monitoring model, if it's, if it's appropriate after identifying the severity, the irritability, the nature, the stage of the injury, um, if you're going to use it in conjunction with a sports medicine professional, um, we can use it as a powerful tool to empower the athlete, but also provide the strength and conditioning professional with, with some guidance. And now that, that ball can be kind of passed your way because strength and conditioning professionals know full well how to regress progress exercise, and even know how to select exercises that are tend to be better tolerated by athletes in pain. So Matt, you, you have an athlete with patellofemoral pain, anterior knee pain. I'm certain, certain you have a handful of exercises up your sleeve, modifications to your standard you know, front squats that you would normally do with that team um, in your arsenal. So if that athlete who's using a pain monitoring model reports to you, hey coach, this is really killing me today. My right knee, it's, it's a seven out of 10. Um, and you know, you and the athlete both know that seven out of 10 was defined as a high risk pain. The athlete's not tolerating that exercise today. So as the coach, you could regress that exercise in some way that may mean changing one of the variables, like, like the intensity, changing the load. You may change the volume, drop the volume down. You may even change the exercise altogether. You may have a, another idea of an exercise that's likely to be better tolerated, but still suit the training goal of that session um, that the front squat was serving. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, my, my first thoughts immediately go to, well, if, if that's going to hurt, then you do something different. Um, yeah, so there's, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff you can do instead of a, a, a knee dominant, a hip dominant, for example. But um, when, when it comes to obviously combining that rehab and the strength process, what what are the difficulties then let's say you're in that situation and you've got someone with that that um knee pain like how how do you then do the, the rehab on one side but still get a good strength session in on the other side is is there is there little tricks that you can do to make sure that we can still load or uh, potentially yeah adjust exercise so the rest of the body also gets their the, the fill of, of strength or power work whatever it might be 
I, I think um, I think you hinted at it there. You said still load the tissue, and I, I that is very important for most of these musculoskeletal injuries, particularly tendinopathy, which we keep coming back to. It is important to load the tissue that has the issue or injury. Um, so if we're operating as a strength and conditioning professional from the sense of I have to avoid pain altogether. And you know what, if you can't front squat, let's just deadlift today. Um, you know, the deadlift may not be appropriately loading the quadriceps or, or the patellar tendon, um, isn't loading the front of the knee as well as maybe the front squat was. Um, so rather than completely avoid loading, this set of rules that pain monitoring models provide us allow us all to be on the same page, that we can act with confidence. We can load that tissue with confidence um, and actually feel good about, maybe feel okay or even good about encountering some level of pain with loading, um, provided it's not in that high-risk territory. Um, so I should mention that we, we do have to monitor at several time frames. So as a component of the pain monitoring model, we're not just looking at pain during exercise. We're going to look at pain or have the athlete rate their pain immediately after the session. And then again the next day, because a lot of these tendinopathy, tendon problems present as morning pain or startup pain the next morning uh, if you overdid it the day before. So we don't just have that acute in the moment, give me a score. We also have to monitor afterwards. So this takes tracking. It takes a little bit of effort on the part of the athlete, a lot of effort on the part of the strength and conditioning professional. Uh, if the strength and conditioning professional is going to help manage this with in tandem with the sports medicine team, um, it takes a lot of tracking what the athlete actually did, what the athlete reported, and then what modifications were made if necessary during the session. Um, so it, it is very important to load these issues. In fact, with tendinopathy, um, the evidence suggests that that is the the strongest intervention we have at our disposal. The best tool we have at our disposal is exercise therapy that loads the tissue. Um, and again, at least for Achilles tendinopathy, um, we've known for 20 years now that some painful loading may be necessary uh, because we have to load that tendon with enough intensity or heavily enough uh, to create tissue adaptation um, to completely resolve these issues. So load is an interesting concept and we could, we could get into that. It's, it could be a double-edged sword. Um, and, and this pain monitoring model tries to kind of toe the line between too much, too little while respecting the athlete's pain experience. Uh, and, and we can kind of get into, if we have time, we can get into maybe the, the strength on the psychosocial side of using one of these pain monitoring models. Cause we, we've talked about the sports medicine professional. We've talked about the strength coach, but how about the athlete who's, who's living with this? Um, I, I think that's another strength of these pain monitoring models because it, it gives the athlete a, a sense of control in a sense, a sense of involvement. Um, because Matt, when, when do your athletes tend to say, all right, that's enough. I got to go get checked out by the, you know, the sports medicine physician, the PT, the personal, I'm sorry, the physical therapist or the ATC athletic trainer, at what point, you know, at what point do they make that decision in your experience? Most of the time, um, in my experience, they, they moan about something and I say moan in a very derogatory way, of course, uh, they, they, they 
discuss their issue. Um, and uh, most of the time we just work out how much pain there is and how much we need to adjust in the session. And if it comes down to the fact that we think, you know what, actually we need to adjust or, or change too much, then they might go straight away to the physiotherapist. And if we can adjust and, and make some changes around and we can go, you know what, you can do your session today, but afterwards you're going to need to go and see them. Um, a lot of the time it's, it's someone who's sent there. Um, and some of the time, this is stuff that I see less, obviously, because I'm in the gym and maybe on a Wednesday morning, they, they just go, um, then they, they realize themselves, okay, you know what, this is, this is too much. Um, it's a very difficult and very subjective boundary to, to kind of describe to them to say, you know what, when you think this is too much, you go to the physio because some people think, oh, it's fine. And then their arms falling off and you're like, well, you should go to the physio. And some people like they, they stepped out of the car and they, they went, oh yeah, it's cold today. And, and their arm feels bad. So I think it's really difficult to have that subjective uh, boundary and a pain score could definitely do a, a really good job to, to guide those decision-making skills. So I think you're describing the two kind of polar opposite ends of the spectrum of athletes we see. There are the no pain, no no gain types, you know, that, that feel like, okay, we got to push through this. Um, and that could be maladaptive. That could be maladaptive. Um, it's certainly not a no pain, no gain scenario when we're, we're dealing with an injury. And then on the other side of the spectrum, and I, I say these are two different individuals, but they could be the same individual on two different days or within the context of two different exercises for that matter. Um, pain is so complex, but you've got the other side of the token those individuals that have, you know, high anxiety and fear about their pain that are playing a role, and maybe they haven't um, experienced that loss of function, they're still able to complete the reps, they're still able to attend practice and play in their games. Uh, but that fear of, of losing their athletic identity, having long term damage or harm, um, maybe the impetus for them saying, all right, I'm thrown in the towel, I need to go uh, you know, I need to go to the sports medicine uh, provider and get this checked out. So um, uh, on both sides, both of those individuals, I think, or both of those kind of approaches to injury, <clears throat> both of those athletes uh, need guidance. And the pain monitoring model, I think, can be a way of kind of finding a middle ground uh, because it isn't that, you know, no pain, no gain. We we don't want to push to the most extremes because um, ultimately even the, the strongest athlete will cease to be able to tolerate that. And um, there's something to be said for the development of, of you know, increased sensitivity over time and, and things like that. We don't always wanna be pushing into the, the worst pain possible, but also we don't wanna be living in fear if it's not necessary. So a lot of these musculoskeletal injuries, many of them that we're gonna see at high frequency in sports medicine um, are, are not the type that are likely to lead to long-term um, debilitating symptoms or, or problems. Um, so if we can perform a thorough evaluation and diagnosis and then explain to the athlete that, you know, this, this is what's going on and some pain during activity at this stage is expected, acceptable, and maybe even therapeutic because it means we're barking up the right tree. So um, I think it can be a tool that empowers the athletes uh, to maybe shed some of that anxiety or shed some of those maladaptive beliefs about being tough and pushing through, um, you know, even the worst possible symptoms they're having in the gym or on the field. 
absolutely excellent. So when when we kind of bring all this together, obviously we heard different snippets from different uh, viewpoints, which I really like. Um, when when we bring all of this together, I'm interested to hear how you would use this in a case study, right? So um, how do you then structure your your rehab programs, and how do you then drip in this this pain model alongside that? And can you give us some some examples of how you would use it in changing exercises, sets, reps, that kind of stuff? Certainly, certainly. So, so I've used this outside of the the areas where it's been recommended in the scholarly literature that that we reviewed previously. I've used it for a wide variety of of tendinop clients presenting with tendinopathy, tendon problems, um, hip flexor tendinopathy, for example. Um, uh, we have our our more recent study. Um, 2020, it came out on acute hamstring injuries. I've been using this quite a bit with hamstring injuries. Um, rotator cuff-related pain is a common one in my setting. Um, so I'll tell you about uh, a recent experience I had with a, an American football player, um, so gridiron football. Um, he's a high school senior and a very talented defensive end um, dealing with uh, anterior or front of the shoulder pain. Um, so we went through a thorough evaluation diagnosis he presented with um, signs of anterior instability, which is really common in contact sport athletes, as well as the, you know, the resistance training or weight training uh, public. Basically, um, essentially, we, we may have increased forward translation of the humeral head, and that may irritate structures on the front of the shoulder. So in addition to this apprehension that he had when, when he put his arm up at kind of 90 degrees external rotation um, and, and pain in that position, um, he had some signs of rotator cuff related pain. Um, and it was important to him. He was just kind of coming into the preseason uh, when when I started working with him. So it was important to him uh, to be able to play through this season because in, in the United States, your senior year in athletics is very important, particularly for this individual because he was being actively scouted by universities. So he had to play. He had to play and he had to play well. Um, scholarships were on the line. And so... After this evaluation, um, pain seemed to be the predominant feature uh, of this injury, and I did not suspect that tissue capacity um, was an issue. Uh, tissues were unlikely to fail. We just had to give this athlete strategies to cope with the pain and be able to hopefully play through the season and train through the season. Um, so we in rehabilitation and also in the gym, we know we have tools that we can use to modulate pain. Um, and we went ahead and used those. Um, so soft tissue work, joint mobilizations, you know, in the gym, you might foam roll uh, a painful area. You can modulate pain and pain is not a, a fixed thing. It changes and we are able to change it. Um, so oftentimes when he, when he was painful, uh, he would use strategies to, to decrease his pain. Um, and we did implement a pain monitoring model um, in more of a traditional pain monitoring model where um, five, I'm sorry, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 were considered to be high risk um, with the understanding that he could train with the team with likely some modifications. We found really early on that bench press um, was one of the um, weight room related movements that was really uh, aggravating his shoulder. Um, and that makes sense because with anterior instability, you have your external rotation and extension that tend to be um, the most symptomatic positions. 
Um, so we modified that exercise because it was consistently putting him either during the exercise or after the workout into that high risk range. Um, so we switched over to a, like a pin press um, where we'd set the spotter arms or catches a bit higher off the chest. Um, in effect, that prevented his shoulders from moving into hyperextension and he was able to tolerate bench pressing with the rest of the team in the weight room. Um, so we also um, found that uh, a lot of the kind of plyometric type upper body activities that he was doing in practice and during games um, would really aggravate his shoulders as well. He had to play. And, and that, this is where the challenge is in rehabilitating uh, an athlete who is actively playing through an injury. He had to be on, on the field. Um, and uh, it, it was important, obviously, for him to earn his uh, position at university for, for next year. Um, so you have very little control over an environment like a football game. Um, I can't regress the intensity of the hits this defensive end is going to experience or what contact he's going to make on the field. Um, uh, so that is something we had to accept um, that, you know, you, you probably will have to p play through some high risk pain if, if you're um, going to play through this injury. But in the weight room, um, we removed some of the plyometric upper body plyos that he was doing. Um, so when you're dealing with a, you know, a tendon problem, maybe a rotator cuff related tendon problem, um, too frequent um, repetitions of energy storage and release through the tendon uh, may be related to uh, that problem. So we essentially changed the kind of repetitive plyometric stretch shortening cycle upper body plyos that he was doing um, with uh, some very controlled plyometrics. And I think I saw a, a video of you doing these the other day. Um, you, you approached a sled and performed an upper body kind of pushing ballistic exercise just by sliding this sled. Um, so we still did power work for his upper extremity and found that he was able to tolerate these ballistic sled pushes really well. So as we're getting into the preseason and in season, it was still important to us to be able to program power exercises, but rather than doing plyometric pushups or um, bench throws or um, repeated medicine ball throws, um, it was a very controlled, relatively low rep, so our kind of four to six repetitions per set, pushing this uh, sled across the gym. And actually our, our sessions after any pain modification techniques that we needed to use typically began with that exercise. I like to structure my rehab sessions a lot like a strength and conditioning session whenever possible. So started with kind of the power exercise, hopefully that gave us a bit of a potentiation effect, or at least um, fatigue was very low when we went into that exercise, similar to what you might do as a strength coach, power exercises early on in the session. And then we moved into a, some strength-based exercises um, you know, for the upper body. Uh, I mentioned the pin presses, um, that was his major upper body push. We also experimented with a, um, an exercise called uh, the squeeze press. Um, and this one's kind of neat, uh, you take two dumbbells, squeeze them together and perform a chest press or a, a bench press with the dumbbells. Um, and because those dumbbells are squeezed together throughout the entire repetition, you're getting a lot of um, activity in the chest uh, and potentially a little bit more co-contraction around the shoulders. And in effect, because the weights are squeezed together, you cannot bring your shoulders into hyperextension. Your shoulders never pass behind the body. So this was really well tolerated, allowed him, allowed him to feel the training stimulus in his chest, just like he did with heavy bench presses. Um, so that one was a great pushing exercise. We know there's this rotator cuff um, kind of bias 
with uh, pushing and pulling exercises where uh, pulling exercises or shoulder extension exercises tend to work the anterior cuff a bit more. Um, you see higher activation of subscapularis during rows. Um, so we incorporated uh, a lot of rowing, um, upper body pulling into his program. Um, we did a lot of like landmine work, um, some, some bench supported work, uh, barbell rows um, or prone rows, I should say. And then we got into accessories. So similar to a um, you know, strength training session in the gym, then comes his accessory work. He did lateral raises in your kind of 10 to 20 repetition range, two to three sets, pullovers. So um, pullovers helped him to build control through an entire arc of motion. So doing some cable pullovers, um, again, two to three sets, 10 to 20 reps. Um, and then in that accessory work, um, and strength and conditioning professionals should feel empowered to do manual isometrics as well. Um, we actually did end range manual isometrics. So that is where uh, the athlete's arm was prepositioned in a vulnerable position, a position he felt to be vulnerable, um, but still tolerating based on our pain monitoring model. And then I would apply a resistance force to his arm. Um, and at, at the most basic level, these isometrics are very predictable. Um, and then we could begin getting to make them a bit more unpredictable and move into a strategy called rhythmic stabilization, where you're performing isometrics from alternating directions um, and then making it reactive. Uh, he has to look away. Uh, he can't predict which direction the challenge is going to come from. So we incorporated that kind of in the accessory block, but I think that was an important rehabilitation exercise for this athlete. Uh, but that really was a, a standard session for us. Um, and above and beyond the times I'd see him in the rehabilitation clinic once or twice a week, he would train once or twice a week in the weight room uh, with his team, with the pain monitoring model, and with several of the exercise modifications. So um, he wasn't to back squat. The position of his shoulders on the back squat was, was irritating his shoulders. Um, so we had an, a modification or a workaround uh, for the back squats to get him out of this kind of fully externally rotated shoulder position. So he went back to the weight room almost immediately with modifications. Uh, his coaching staff was on board. He was able to play through the entire season, and now he has multiple scholarship offers for next year. So it was a successful rehabilitation. Ultimately, it didn't end there in season. We needed to wrap up um, in the postseason because uh, ultimately his goal is to get back to traditional strength and conditioning for an American football player. So he's got a bench press. You know, you go to a combine, they want to know what you bench. Um, he's got a back squat because he's likely going to do that in, in college. So his rehabilitation wasn't done once we successfully played through the season. We needed to gradually reintroduce those um, more typical strength and conditioning movements back into his program. Um, but ultimately, uh, that's a success story of using the pain monitoring model. Absolutely excellent. I, I think that's an, a really, really interesting case study from all of the, the, the great information you gave at the start of the podcast to hear it all applied there as well and the reasoning behind it. I think that's uh, excellent stuff. So Merrick, massive thanks for your time and effort today. Where can people find a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Uh, so I have a, I'll, I'll have you put my um, kind of link tree link to my writing. Um, I do some fitness writing. Uh, I've written for T Nation and Breaking Muscle in the past, uh, doing more scholarly writing and research these days. So I have some links to some of my more recent like strength and conditioning journal articles um, in there. 
Um, I'll be presenting at the Great Lakes Regional Conference. This is a National Strength and Conditioning Association conference on a topic related to what we just talked about. So um, kind of programming for our injured or, or uh, pained athletes with, with Dr. Crystal Guevara. Um, she's a sports medicine physician co-presenting this session with me. Um, so that's in April of 2024, uh, if you happen to be local to the Great Lakes region of the United States. Uh, otherwise, keep an eye out. If, if this is a topic that folks want to hear more about, um, I'll write more on it. I will present more on it. Uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, and I think it could be very useful for strength and conditioning professionals and rehab professionals to hear. Absolutely. No, no, I certainly agree. So, Merrick, massive thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you for having me, man. That was awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Merrick for all of his hard work at this podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses that you've broken down into bite sized chunks. So, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, you have to do is hit the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time and you can get yourself into the coach academy completely for free for the next seven days and of course if you have enjoyed today's podcast it's fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach a colleague an athlete or a friend that means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content and that's it once again a massive thanks from me i'm matt solomon for science of sport and i'll speak to you next week